Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Paul Edwards. Welcome to Tuesday Topics. Tonight, we're going to be discussing uh, an issue uh, that is perhaps not getting the attention it deserves uh, from the American Council of the Blind, though that's an opinion of this person and not necessarily of the leadership of the American Council of the Blind. But the issue is folks who have two disabilities at the same time. That is those who are visually impaired or blind and those who in addition uh, are hearing impaired. And of course, the hearing loss and the vision loss come in all shapes and sizes. And recently, one of my guests, Miss Deborah Kendrick, has published a book that explores what happens if you are blind and then begin to lose your hearing. So, Miss Deborah, why don't you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write that book and then tell us some more about the book. Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me on your lovely program to talk about something that has become a favorite subject to me, the combined loss of vision and hearing. Um, I was in secret for a long, long time. I started losing my hearing when I was 15 and I would not even acknowledge it until I was 26. Um, I was 26 when my first child was born and when others could hear her cry from the front porch and I could not, I realized that all those specialists, O&M people and Others who had told me that I should see a doctor were maybe onto something. But even with that, and even with, you know, getting a hearing test and being told by a really cruel doctor that I'd probably be deaf by the time I was 40, um, I continued not to share. And I think, you know, it's take, I've had a lot of time to process this and think about it. And I think you know, there's an underlying deep truth about disability in general here. We see any disability as shame, something to be ashamed of. So those of us, I've been blind since I was five years old, so I nailed it. I mastered it. I knew how to do blind and how to put it in the back seat and just be a regular person pretty much. But it has given me so much empathy for people losing vision later because as my hearing kept deteriorating and it got harder and harder, by the time I was 30, I had to have hearing aids. And I did finally find out that my hearing loss was from the radiation that I had as a five-year-old child in an attempt to save my eye. So it was kind of like double insult. Um, 
<laughs> because I didn't care about being blind and nobody asked my opinion when I was five. But at any rate, um, so I had lots of years to figure out strategies and to, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing, figure out how to maximize what hearing I had to appear to have regular hearing because, oh my gosh, people, you know, to me, the pity of another human being is like the greatest insult, most painful experience to have to endure. And I knew that if people knew that I couldn't hear either, they'd be like dripping all over me and it would just be intolerable. So I, I kept it a secret for a long time. And I won't go into the reasons that I turned a corner, but I'm so grateful that I did. And then I sort of went completely in the other direction and became um, the proverbial poster child for hearing aids because once I admitted that I had these, I kept hiding my hearing aids, you know, and the, but once I admitted that I had them and I started really working with audiologists and working with the whole concept in my head of, okay, I've learned this and I've learned that, but I haven't articulated it and, you know, kind of talking about that and sharing it with other people. Um, so it's a long process. And, and a lot of things happened along the way. A friend talked me into going to a deafblind convention in, I think, 97 or 98, when she said to me, well, you know, technically you're deafblind. And I thought, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. But, of course, you know, technically, I guess I am. And I went to this convention as a volunteer typing the real-time uh, transcripts of what people were saying for the low vision deaf people in the audience. And I, it was just such a, an amazing experience. I loved being there. And, and later I, um, when um, the um, CVAA included the FCC money for equipment for deafblind people, the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program. I, I learned about that program, went to several events talking about it as a journalist, and I wound up teaching in it because I fell in love with it. So through that, I came to know a lot of deafblind people. And so, I don't know, it's a process. So all the while, I think, because I'm a writer first and foremost, Writing about this is what I wanted to do, and sharing the strategies that I'd learned how to, we, we all know, and I, I say this in the book, if you've been blind for a fair amount of time, you know that it's, it's okay. You can work around it. You can find alternative strategies and techniques, and you can work around that blindness and not be missing much of anything. You can do everything you want to do. Well, the same is true with hearing. It's just that it's more complicated because as blind people, we use our ears to see. And so we have to really work hard for the workarounds, but they exist. And I wrote the book to share what I've learned with my blind brothers and sisters everywhere to say, hey, the game's not over. You know, don't go into your corner and think that you have to be miserable now. You can still be out there and do everything you want to do, but you have to learn some new techniques and you have to 
learn about some new technologies called, some of them are hearing aids, those little computers that go in your ears. And um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, um, I say it's, this book was a labor of love, you know, it's, it's my gift to the blind community who so many people have said to me already in the two months that it's been out that they have had a hearing loss for so long and they were so embarrassed and it feels so good to come out and to talk about it and to know that, that it's okay and they're not alone. And, and I guess, you know, one final thing I'll say about that is, you know, when I was doing, the book is a combination of research and personal experience and um, probably more heavily on the research, but the Alan Keller National Center website says that there are 2.4 million of us in America who have combined vision and hearing losses. And when you think about that, that's such a huge number. So don't waste time being embarrassed because it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Just like being blind is nothing to be embarrassed about. And, you know, if you can't walk or you, you have a broken arm or whatever, I mean, you are who you are. And um, the book is, is about taking what you have and absolutely maximizing it to live the quality of life that you want to have. So let me explore with you a little um, what, what, what I'm not sure I understand. So maybe you can help me. Uh, I, I would guess that by the time you were 15, you were pretty comfortable with your blindness and, and you didn't perceive it as something shaming. Would that be right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So if, if you have one disability and, and you're relatively comfortable with it, that is you, you perceive blindness as being okay. And you know, and everybody knows that I'm fond of saying it's, it's really kind of cool to be blind. I know, um, I we, concur. Because we can read in the dark and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. But, but, but you say that a secondary disability made you feel ashamed. Can, can you explore for me a little bit more why? Because it's just another disability, surely. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good question, Paul. And I'm not sure I completely understand it myself, except here's what I think. I think whatever our disability is, once we get accustomed to it and we find the strategies for working around it, we know intrinsically, if we're lucky, and I think most of us are lucky here, then we know we're just as good as everybody else. We're, we're We've got some differences, but we're as good or better than anybody we're hanging out with. You know, we're, we're, we're totally okay. And like you say, there's some cool things about being blind because, you know, I can remember figuring that out when I was eight years old and yeah. playing war and crazy eights when my best friend slept over, you know, and our parents said we had to go to sleep and we knew we could play cards under the covers and they wouldn't catch us because we didn't need to see. So, <laughs> um, so, but, so I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that, um, and, and, and I say this, I, I know you're considerably younger than I am, but, but I think it would be accurate to say 
that when we were growing up, the absolute scariest thing to be was deafblind. Um, and for all of us who were blind, I think we felt this way. And, and it, it's not just that we were afraid of hearing loss. It, it was because what, what we had heard about um, folks who were deafblind um, and, and really what was true was that they at that time lived an absolutely obnoxiously awful existence. Um, they, there was no easy way for them to do mobility. There was no simple way for them to get out of the house. Many of them never got to the point where they learned to read Braille well. There wasn't the technology that allowed them to do many of the things that deafblind people do now. So do you think the stigma that was attached to deafblindness might have affected the way you operated? I think that might have played a small part, but I, I think that I, I wasn't really plugged in. You know, I went to public school, so after I was 10, I only had one blind friend because I, I wasn't even in school with other blind kids after that. So... I, I don't think I knew a lot about, I think as, as a kid, all I knew about deafblind was Helen Keller and she was like, you know, in a different planet. But I think, I think what it is, is it's the new normal. So if you're blind and you get used to it and you master the techniques, then you're normal. And if yeah. you're deaf and you get used to it and you master the techniques, you are completely normal. If yeah. you're born with spina bifida and you use a wheelchair, that becomes your normal. You see what I'm saying? Because sure. I think it's it's an overall thing about disability of any kind. And I, I think what's enabled me to think about it more is that I have had some significant mobility issues the last few years. And I think about how mortified I was the first time I had to go somewhere in public with a walker. Like, yep. oh my God, people are going to think I'm decrepit and feeble and, you know, all these bad things when I'm still me. And it's really helped me put all of it together. And no, this is why there, you know, there's, there's a lot of coalition now among disability groups, but there should be even more because I'm here to say I've experienced and all three pretty much are the same once you get used to them, you're still you. I mean, yeah. and it just takes learning the, the tricks of the trade of that particular disability. And that's- We're gonna come back, we're gonna come back to your book in a little while. Okay. Let me ask Lori Scharf, who is our other guest, and she is a member of the Sight and Sound Impaired Committee of the American Council of the Blind. Lori, when did you become interested in deafblindness and why? Thank you, Paul, for having me. Um, I, I just want to say, in, in regards to your, your last part of your conversation, I think also part of it is for children who are younger, developing a disability early on in life, they learn to accept things because they're learning things in a certain way. And then they're literally grieving the additional disabilities that they're developing. And that grieving ne didn't necessarily happen at a younger age in the same way as it would when you're older. 
Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Would you would you buy that, Deborah? Did you did did you grieve in 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 the way that that older kind of adult onset dis, dis, disabled people do with deafness? With the, with the hearing, yeah, I think yeah because I think even when I think back to when I was like nineteen and in college. I remember, and we would hang out at this one professor's house, and he had this big old farmhouse that was all kind of echoey. And and I remember that my one of my best friends, who was often there as well, would say sometimes to other people about me, she's not hearing you, speak up. And I would be furious and think, do not say that, because at this point, Yes, there had been some tests sent home from school that told my parents that I had a hearing loss, but my parents had done absolutely nothing about it, so it didn't exist, right? And which so, is very common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would say, yeah. I, first, I, I don't really know all that Elizabeth Kubler Ross stuff about the stages, but I'm thinking, listening to what Laurie just said, yeah. If anything, in the beginning, I would just, I was mad. I didn't want to think about it. I was really mad, yep. and yeah, there was some real grieving. Pretend steps. it wasn't there. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I I only I only raise that because I professionally I'm a social worker, um, for the last almost twenty years, and I've seen it in clients, uh, both who are deaf and have lost vision or developed other disabilities, and clients who are blind, and have lost hearing. Um, or developed other disabilities, and it doesn't only pertain to vision and hearing loss, it may pertain to psychiatric issues and, and different things along those lines. Um, but how I got started in the field or area of deafblindness, um, when I was a social work intern, I think my supervisor thought it was a joke to give me a list of clients, and three of the people out of the ten were deaf. And so I began as a social bachelor's social work intern working with three deaf clients who, looking back, taught me an immense amount about myself, about working with people and teaching people to advocate only when they're comfortable with things. Um, and this would have been the mid-90s. Mid yeah, mid-90s. But prior to that, I had been to the ACB convention in Chicago, and a friend of mine, Liz Garner, who has since passed away, said to me, she had just come back from the American Association for the Deaf-Blind Conference, and she said, come on, I'm going to the Deaf-Blind event. Come with me. And I said, Liz, I'm lucky if I can spell my name and get a sentence out. And she said, oh, come on. And I got drafted to do what's called Rochester Method, which is fingerspelling what um, is being said into a, a gentleman's hand who did not have enough vision anymore to receive fingerspelling visually. Right. Um, and that was kind of my connection back in 90, uh, 94. Um, and uh, then Terry Pacheco, when she worked at the national office, asked me to assist in coordinating interpreters uh, for the national convention in Pittsburgh. And I knew the individuals who needed interpreters um, at that particular convention. And so I've kind of been working within the SASE committee and uh, ever since then. Excellent. 
All right, Miss Deborah, let's get back to your book for a little while. Um, how would you describe the, the, the organization of your book and, and what would you say, um, what, what would you say are, are kind of the major things that you'd like people to take from it? Well, Cassell Wilson, um, my editor at National Braille Press, described it as, I think what she said was user-friendly, which I like very much. I mean, I think that, um, I think my style in, in general is, you know, my narrative style is just, I, I'm writing like I'm talking to you, so it's not a whole lot different from my talking, except, you know, there, there, there's less digression. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in in um, in the book, I it's it's divided into sections. But primarily, the aim of the whole book is you are still you and advocate for yourself. If you're blind and you've gotten any techniques together as a blind person and you're losing hearing, just know that you can do the same thing. So, so there's a a lot of just talking about that in the beginning, and then, and then talking about a lot of practical tips that I've gleaned over years and years of experience. Um, there's a section called decorating for sound and circling the table. You know, when, when I finally, I've had eight guide dogs and I was on my third or fourth when I, when I was caught. I'd been hiding my hearing aids and not always wearing them. And, and um, the instructor finally took me aside and said, you know, what's going on here? Do you have a hearing problem? Well, yes, I do anyway. But, you know, it was such a relief. And so from then on, all my other guide dog classes that I was in, I would, you know, walk around the room and figure out the best hearing seat. And then when I would figure out the best hearing seat, everybody was cool. You know, it just, that's, that's what I want to communicate to people is, oh my gosh, when you finally just come clean and tell people, it's so much better because then your friends want to help you find the best hearing seat. So, I mean, for years going into a restaurant situation, people who know me are used to me, you know, walking around the table, scoping it out, figuring out where I want to sit. Because again, remember, if you've got some sight and you can't hear, that's one thing. You can watch people and know if they're laughing or, you know, not and read a little bit of, do a little bit of lip reading maybe and see their hand gestures. But if you have zero sight and you can't hear anything, you're, you're out of the game completely. So I, I've learned, you know, if I sit with a wall behind me and get the center seat at the table, I'm a little better. So there's a chapter all about those kind of strategies and how to set things up if you're having a party at your house and how to work it so that you don't wind up being the one person at the party who's not having a good time because you can't hear. Um, then certainly there's a lot about hearing aids and um, about all the different types of hearing aids. And then I think probably the most important section of the book is about working with audiologists because audiologists have been trained to work with people who have lost hearing and need to use 
technology to claim, reclaim some of that hearing. They are not trained to work with people who have already been using their ears to see. And it's a whole different um, area of, of expertise. And so what I have found and all of my friends who are blind hearing aid users have found, it is totally up to us. If hearing aids are going to work for us, we need to teach our audiologists while we're teaching ourselves. And it can be a really fun collaborative journey, but it, it helps to have some guidance. And so um, I think probably the most significant portions of the book um, are about training your brain, you know, learning to hear with hearing aids and working with your audiologist. And there are some other chapters on covering the cost right. and other kinds of things. But I, I think that's, that's the most, most important. And I will say, because um, um, we haven't talked about format, but it's, I'm so happy that National Braille Press felt that this book was important enough that it's available in any format. It's two hard copy Braille volumes. It's also available in large print, and then it's several downloadable versions. So um, any, any way that you prefer to read, you can read this book. One of the things that, that, um, that was intriguing to me is, um, I, I guess, as a person who hasn't had to deal with this yet, um, what, what I sort of figured is, okay, um, you're losing your hearing, you get a hearing aid, and that's that. And one of the things that your, that your book indicates is that there are so many special purpose tools that can expand beyond just what a hearing aid can do um, and, and can actually create a good deal more freedom for folks who are, who are substantially hearing impaired um, in particular areas that those pieces of equipment specialize in. Yeah, I, I stumbled on some of the some things when I wasn't even admitting it. So I don't I don't even know if I had hearing aids yet. You remember the um, the talk man, the cassette yeah. player. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, I I don't know if I had hearing aids yet, but if I was, I wasn't using them much. But I remember figuring out that if I set all the switches on my talk man a certain way and had the headphones on, it amplified the sound around me. It was the coolest thing. It was the coolest thing. And I could like hear, my kids were little, and I could hear them in the next room, which I never could do with my normal hearing. I could not possibly hear them. But it was like, you know, I, I there was this book when I was little called um, The Trouble with Jenny's Ear, and Jenny had this magic ear that she could like, hear stuff far away, you know, and everything. So it was kind of like I had my own little magic ear. Well, so I've discovered that with a couple of off-the-shelf products that were not meant to do that at all, but you fiddle around with things and you... So now there are tools that actually do that on purpose. So um, I talk and, about... And there's a there's a whole chapter on some of those, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and I think... And I forgot about that. Thank you. Because I think those products for people who are 
still struggling and oh I don't really everybody says I'm missing stuff but I don't have a hearing problem well then start with a PSAP because uh, th- what? actually that's <laughs> that <is> um, a PSAP <laughs> <laughs> a personal sound amplification product and thank you <laughs> so these are kind of off the shelf products that are not hearing aids, but they amplify. The first one, I was at a CSUN conversa- uh, con- conference and I went over, I mean, I remember it's like, you know, like sneaking into the, into the pornographic store, right? Like I'm at CSUN and I'm supposed to be there covering all the products for blind people. But I kind of slinked over to one of the sound tables to talk yeah, about products for deaf people. And I saw this really cool thing, which I'm sure Lori has seen a hundred thousand of them called the um, pocket talker. And I said, Oh, my mother could really use this. I swear. <laughs> I, that woman, she gave it to me. She said, why don't you just take it? This is my gift to you. And I have always believed she knew I was, she knew I was lying. I mean, my mother did have a hearing loss, but I, I wanted it for me and she knew it and she gave it to me and it was my first. <laughs> and, and I used it a lot too. So what the pocket talker is, it's just a little tiny gizmo with, you put an earbud in your ear or you can use earphones and it, it acts as a microphone and amplifies. So say if you're sitting in a car with somebody and you can't hear them well, you can just turn on your pocket talker and, you know, aim the microphone at that person and it will amplify it. Now, and I I think one of the challenges that people often face is, you know, and this, this is for people when they're losing vision or people when they're losing hearing is they don't know necessarily what they're missing or yes. how much yes. they're missing. And yes. to admit that you missed something, if you don't know what happened, how can you even acknowledge it? Yes. Yeah. And using something like a personal assistive listening system, which some of them are low tech, but you always get what you pay for, as I like to say, um, you know, it, it may help somebody to understand how much they're missing. Um, I know somebody who um, who got one and, and said, you know, I forgot that my refrigerator hummed until I laid it on the counter right next to my refrigerator to get something out of a cabinet. And then I said, wow, my refrigerator still makes noise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... And one other, you know, when you asked me about the layout of the book, I, I neglected one piece that's very important. There's a section on the things we have to teach our audiologist that are unique to blindness. And so, you know, I haven't looked at the book for a month or so, but off the top of my head, I, I suspect what those are is occlusion, localization, and echolocation. So you... You drop something on the floor and your ears tell you where it is. And you, most of us, I, 
it's a rare blind person who enjoys wearing hats or earmuffs because we can't see with them on our ears. And I don't hear as well wearing a mask. And, and I mean, there's no excuse for it, but I don't. I've heard so it's many true. people say that, Paul. It's true. It's, it's absolutely yeah. true. Well, and you know, when I was a kid, my stepfather read uh, Ved Metta out yeah. of the, the New Yorker. Ved Metta was a guy from India who became a scholar and a blind guy wrote a lot of really interesting stuff about blindness. He called it facial vision. So I called it that for a long time. But I think he was onto something. It's facial vision and echolocation because yeah. your mask yeah, isn't covering is. your ears. Yeah. It's covering your face. So, yeah. and so, and that's as that a person. Larry Gassman, by the way, who's doing our streaming. Thank you for that, Larry. I was hoping, <laughs> yeah, you, you, I was hoping you wouldn't hear me because I'm not actually in the conversation, but I had to duck it in because it's true. I have to oh, walk a lot slower. Yeah. No, so I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. So So many people have said that to me. And it's a pandemic problem. (laughs) And just just today I was I was leaving a store and I heard the automatic door open and then I I paused like a a, a, I don't know, like in shock because all of a sudden when I took a step it felt like the door had closed again, and I realized exactly. it was just the way the air currents were reflecting right. off of my off desk. Oh and my I said, oh, yeah. man. Wow. All right. So, Lori, we've been talking so far about one group of people. That is folks who have a, a substantial to major to absolute vision loss who later lose their hearing, but they're is another set of folks who are part of our community. And that, those are folks who start out deaf uh, and then start to lose their vision later. And there are loads of diseases that actually cause that. Mm-hmm. Talk a little about what the journey is for those folks. It's very similar in a lot of aspects. Um, You know, they have to learn to communicate differently very often. Um, I have a very good friend of mine who was a um, tool and die maker, and he uh, has ushers and has lost Mm -hmm. enough vision now to not be able to lip read enough. He has... um, very good uh, oral spoken skills and oral right. skills to to hear, uh, but to with losing yep. his vision, he's really struggling with not being able to pick up on those visual cues. He also now, was, he a, was he a sign language user? Uh, yeah, he actually is very total communication. Um, he he is a fluent signer and I always tell him he's one of the best people that can walk the bicultural world that I know, but you know, he's now having to learn to read braille and uh, which has posed some interesting issues. Um, He can't read sign language through a video phone or anything like that anymore. So uh, his wife is actually interpreting his braille lessons to him from a teacher through the national center. Um, So, Uh, talk about learning Braille with some big obstacles in the way. Um, you know, 
every people really have to be resilient and it's it's taken him i've known him pretty close for about the last 20 years right and he's known it's coming and you know he kept saying to me like i just have to get to the point where i know i'm going to use the braille and i know i'm going to use tactile sign language um so, and it's it's a struggle it really is he's had yeah. to grieve the loss and yeah. Um, you know, it does mean that he has friends in the deaf community who will not communicate with him, won't walk sighted guide with him, things like that. Right. So it's it's a big adjustment. I know blind people that are you know, part, part of Lori, the blind community. What, what you're saying right there, I think that's important about the, this whole philosophy thing because, um, you know, I, I said I, I taught and I can connect for three years and most of the people I taught were deaf first deaf first yes. and blind later. Right. And so, yes, just do you think about this and nobody wants to own it, but among our friends who are blind, when you're losing hearing, that's not cool. And that's one of the reasons I didn't want to let it be known because people would talk down to or about the person who couldn't hear. And the same is true. That's, that's what you're talking about here is yeah, the, the guy who's a, been well, deaf all his life and he's losing it, sight, his friends don't want to own that. No. Right. Well, and it's, you know, it's because people also say, oh, my gosh, you know, so-and-so is going through this. That could be me. And, mm -hmm. you know, nobody wants exactly. to. It wants it to be them. Um, mm. You know, I mean, but that certainly has to it, do with the fear of blindness that operates forever. I mean, oh, yeah. everybody, yeah. everybody runs away from us because we're what they most fear. Um, but you know, it, but I, I want to ask another question, Lori, that, that, that pertains to the same thing. Uh, you know, one of the things that's characteristic of folks who are deaf is that they operate within what they describe as the, quote, deaf culture. Mm -hmm. And that deaf culture has a number of assumptions that operate for them, one of which is that uh, I'm not disabled, I'm deaf. Um, and yes. I, I, and I suspect that when a person starts to lose their vision from that culture, um, it, it, it does create a real disconnection from that community because now suddenly this person who is losing his vision is disabled, not deaf. Well, and it's, it's also, a, it becomes like a subculture, I guess is, is the easiest way to describe it. Um, you know, you can no longer talk to somebody or a better example would be like, I can no longer yell at somebody, meaning in sign language, meaning my signs are wider and bigger. Right. Because they now only have five degrees of visual field in both eyes. Right. So I have to be within their field of vision and it, it totally restricts, you know, so if you haven't seen somebody in a couple of months or a couple of years, and you wave to them and they're deaf and they're not acknowledging you. That's like, you know, I'm not going to bother with you because you didn't acknowledge me from across the room. Well, you know, they didn't see you. And it's, it's a whole level of adjustment and reintegration. Um, how you know, and how do we do is, in the blindness community? And this question is for both of you. 
in terms of welcoming that population, welcoming the folks who've been deaf all their lives and, and who are losing their vision. Well, ACB over the years has had uh, quite a few people who are culturally deaf, blind, um, and signers attending conventions at various times, um, using different types of communication. And, and in um, fact, we, we have a group that deals with that, yes? And that group is called? Uh, well, the SASE Committee is a committee mm -hmm. which stands for Sight and Sound Impaired. Uh, mm -hmm. We are looking at a name change, possibly. Um, and we, there also has been some discussions of becoming a, uh, an affiliate as opposed mm. to a committee. Um, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Well, um, so there, but there has been some discussions. Uh, they also have had some had a community event uh, prior to convention. I mm -hmm. think they may be doing another one, but I, I think it's going to be in September. Um, but we typically do a lot of events at convention. We always do a social event, um, and then we usually do at least one program session. And, and the social um, event is one of the ways that we try to welcome folks from that community who, who may feel isolated from the rest of the crew, right? Yes, and we tend to do it at the beginning of the week so people can get to know who's there and, you know, what's everybody's communication method, uh, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, okay, um, you know, who, who, who can I reach out to that might understand my, my situation um, with communication needs and things like that? Um, well, there's two yeah, things I want to, two things I want to say about that. One is about Sassy, and that is that, I mean, not, not to put you on the spot, Lori, or make you feel awkward, but I guess I probably will. Um, I have not come on a regular basis, but I've dropped in a few times. And I would say the degree to which I have felt welcome has been at opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I think part of it is if you don't appear to have, okay, so we all know as blind people, sticking to being just pure blind without a hearing, we all know that garbage comment that is not a compliment that says, well, you don't act like you're blind, okay? So in the context of hearing and vision loss, if I come into a room and a lot of people um, have speaking difficulties or signing or tactile signing, and I come in and I can speak like a hearing person and seem to hear like a hearing person, even though my hearing loss is sliding toward profound. So I'm near the end of the, the deal there, but, but I have managed somehow to, to do well with hearing aids. Then I have found that I'm, I haven't always been accepted as someone. So I would say that's an area to work just like, we as blind people have to recognize that blindness is a huge spectrum, even though, you know, we think, well, we in this quadrant are cool and we in that quadrant are cool. It's all over the map. And deaf blindness is even more so because 
I know many of the people that I was teaching were born deaf, culturally deaf, losing sight, usually due to Usher's syndrome, not always, but so they were losing sight and and so they were used to deaf culture and having to catch on to blind culture, if there is such a thing, and I do believe there is. And success is dependent on being able to hook into both parts. And I think a group that's representing both needs to be keenly aware of that, that people who come in for the first time are going to be all over the map, that, that they're range of hearing, range of vision is going to be all over the map and you just have to accept if they if they if they walk in, they're part of the they're part of the family. So um but the other thing that I that I I I thought of that our listeners as blind people might not be aware of is and and Laurie, I I bet you're a total expert in this. Um one of the most thrilling things, the, the, the three or four years that I taught in the I Can Connect program, I, you know, you're driving all over the state. So I had, a, I had drivers and my primary driver was an interpreter who had been working with deaf people for 30 or 40 years, many of them deaf blind. And she <laughs> She is so cool and so smart, and she taught me so much. But she was really getting into, um, I think it's called Protactile. I hope that's right. Yeah, and that's one of the right. names. Mm-hmm. So some of my students would, and I was thinking when you were talking about this guy, I thought, I wonder if he's one of my former students that you were talking about. It could be. But he, he actually is very big in the movement, um, in the Protactile movement in the Maryland area. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so Lori, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about what protactile is? Because it's a it's a fascinating idea, and it's relatively new, and most of our folks probably don't know a lot about it. So, protactile is a way to provide environmental information and tactual information to somebody, um, and it's. There are two different, the protactile can also be used with a non-signer, um, right. meaning you don't need to know American Sign Language, whereas the Helen Keller National Center has what they call, I want to say touch cues, but I could have the na- that name wrong. I think um, that's right. I think that's what the interpreter would say. And yep. that system is more based on some aspects of a, of American Sign Language. Um, the systems are different. Um, so, for example, uh, my friend that I was talking about earlier, we were in Union Station in Washington, D.C., and I said to him, so explain this to me, and he starts showing me with his hands that there is something growing and it's big, and and he says, well, what do you, and then he says to me, well, what do you think I'm talking about? And I said, a tree. And he's like, yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, way of conveying information. The other thing it can be commonly used for is to convey things like meeting room layout. If you're, if you're a presenter or a participant on a panel or something like that, 
Um, you can draw the map of the room on the person's back and then, you know, draw a question mark if somebody on the left side of the room has a question so that the person who's speaking can look in the direction of the person who has the question. Um, and I, I've been in situations where interpreters have cued me, um, you know, they're there interpreting as platform interpreters. And, you know, one of them will notice that there's a hand raised and obviously I don't see it. And even that I say, don't raise your hand because I won't see it. Somebody always does. Um, you know, so it can be used in a lot of different situations. Um, so the so the interesting thing about ProTactile is it really is kind of private communication between two people who yes. know the system. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's delivered in an unobtrusive way. So that other people who are around the person aren't aware that this kind of communication is typically happening. So, for example, it's, it's like amazing. as a it could be so valuable even to people with normal hearing who are blind. That's some of the things that um, were shown to me by the interpreter that I worked with, and that I got to use a couple of times while speaking. Is to have just like what Laurie said. Somebody's on the left side, raise their hand. Well, you know, like tap. Uh, on so this person is behind you and they tap on the left side of your back on the right side of your back so you know where to look there was and and then just just communicating um so there was the one student that i had who was really big and he was teaching a lot of people pro tactile every time i would leave his house he would walk out with me and he knew like all i knew was the alphabet like i i'm mortified i i don't sign i i know the alphabet but as we were leaving, he would always draw a huge smile on my back. And yeah. it would just make me feel so good. And, and that's, that's one of the things that, that um, my interpreter friend said that, that she would do with people who are like on stage delivering a presentation. Like, you right. know, let them know yes. by tapping in different ways on the back what's going on in the audience. So, for example, like... Um this would be like a very simple form of protactile. Um, as you're signing tactually to somebody, you kind of tap your finger on the back of their hand or their arm or, you, you know, wherever your hand happens to be um, to continue, continually tap as long as you understand what's being said. And then if you don't, if you miss something or you're lost in the conversation, you stop tapping because they're not able to see the facial expressions of the person that they're signing right. to, they're getting that instantaneous feedback. So you're not saying, uh, I don't understand, you know, it's, it's longer to sign, I don't understand, than to just stop tapping your finger. Right. Excellent. So, so, it's, so it's like I, I, sort of like a tactile, uh-huh. Right. Is yep. Right? It is. Yeah. And then there's, okay. you know, also like ways to communicate, like I'm laughing, you know, Yep. Um. Or the audience is sleeping. Oh, yeah, that's always <laughs> one, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, actually, I'll tell about... a story on that. We, Go ahead. In, when we were in uh, Minneapolis, when it, we had about six people using interpreters at the banquet in Minneapolis back in 07, I think it was. And one of the interpreters, who Mike and I both know very well, looked over at our table and the person that he was with said, oh, this isn't very interesting. What are other people doing? And the only people he really knew in the room by name were me and Mike and the other people at the, ta uh, you know, at the two tables. It was, 
hit three deafblind people at one table and some interpreters and you know and then a, a couple other at the next table and so he says well mike's sleeping and Lori looks really bored <laughs> <laughs> so he came up to us afterwards and he said, oh, if so-and-so ever tells you that you look bored or you were sleeping, it's because that's what I told them during the presentation. <laughs> so I want to talk about one other deafblind issue and then we're going to take questions. And, and, and I invite either or both of you to talk about this, but it's a, it's a new and I would say somewhat controversial request. Well, I, I guess it's been around for five to ten years. Uh, but it's something that deafblind people feel that they should have. Um, in some places, it's called, um, they want interveners. In other places, it's called SSP ah. um, mm -hmm. or SSPs. So, yeah. um, so who, would like, who would like to tell our folks about what, what those folks are supposed to do? And, and perhaps as well, um, talk to me a, a, about how valuable you think it is. So this I'd like for Lori to explain what it is and the, 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 the structure behind it, and then I'm going to talk about it as just an individual and my feelings, because yep. I think you probably know more about Miss Lori. So this is Lori speaking. So the um, term intervener is used in Canada and also here in the States in educational settings a lot, um, meaning children in, in high school, elementary school. Um, <clears throat> and the support service provider is used more in a community setting. The purpose of both professionals are to provide information to a person who's deafblind that they are not able to get independently regarding their environment, facilitating communication sometimes, but they're not actual interpreters, but they have the ability to be a conduit of communication. Um, you know, so they're and, not and, and an actual certified feel interpreter. Like they feel, like, feel like they need actually both services at the same time, yes? an interpreter and uh, an, an SSP person? Uh, sometimes it can be. Um, so um, a, a dear friend of mine, the first time she ever used a support service provider was at an ACB convention. And she had been whining to me and telling me that she wasn't deafblind, even that she'd worn hearing aids for over 40 years. And I said, yes, you are. And you're getting a support service provider at the ACB convention in Minneapolis. And afterwards, she said to me, I have never been through the exhibit hall in that manner because the person was there to make sure that she was understanding what booth she was at. She, under, she knew when she was being spoken to, you know, if she couldn't understand the accent of the uh, exhibitor, the interpreter, this, this person happened to be an interpreter, but acting in the role of a support service provider, would repeat verbally what was being said since she was oral, both expressively and receptively. Yep. Um, you know, and it, it, it could be, you know, simple tasks like, you know, guiding somebody. You know, there are sign language interpreters out there who do not feel comfortable guiding people because they're right. not trained in that. That's beyond their level of right. expertise. So, you know, there are some gray areas. Um, 
And there, there are states, um, oh, Minnesota, ahead, for example, uh, where it's similar to like a Medicaid waiver and individuals mm -hmm. have the ability to request hours, so many hours of service per month for events in the community. And those events could be anything that you want. It could be, you know, shopping. It could be a, a, a play, whatever it happens to be. Um, and there are other states where it's not available at all. So right, um, exactly. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's, there, a there's, there's a whole range. I, you know, in yeah, Florida, there is very little SSB going on. Yeah, in in New York State, there has been some. Um, I don't want to bring independent living politics into this, but um, unfortunately, one of the independent living centers absconded with some money and yeah made the program sound good, but. It wasn't as good as to be expected. Um, they, you know, but there are some states that have exemplary programs, and the American Association for the Deaf Blind, for many many years, has been advocating and promoting support service providers yes. on a national level. And their state affiliates have too in in various states, including Florida. Miss Debra, uh, and Rick. After this, we'll open it up to the first question. I I have been well aware of the whole um, uh, business of SSPs and the availability and so forth, and it's been something that I I'm in great support of and have struggled with personally for probably 15 years. Um, where you know a number of people have told me when I can't do this and I can't do that, request an SSP, request an SSP. And, and I just, and then when, you know, I, I, I wound up here in Florida, here I am in a different state, and I, there's so many things need to be done, I didn't know how I was going to get them done, and, and people would say, well, request an SSP, and, you know, people have even sent me some resources, who to contact, and, and so forth and so on. I've, I've never done it, because I've had, I, I think, so here's what I think, and I, I don't even talk about SSPs in the book. Um, but I probably should have. But I, I think that, um, you know, we all do blindness our own way. We all, when we all do deafness our own way, probably. And as a blind person, I don't know how I evolved to be the way that I am, but I have difficulty asking for help doing anything. And so, right. you know, I have close blind friends who have, during COVID, have friends coming over to help them with this and help them with that. And I'm happy for them. But I don't have that, and that's not the way I operate. I, I, need, I need to order my groceries via shipped and order other stuff I need via Amazon. And, yep. you know, I, I just don't have intervention. And so, yeah. I, I, and I think that's something that blind people losing hearing should probably tap into is like figure out your own um and and maybe be more open to ssps perhaps yes exactly figure out what your own biases are because you know when i was working in the icc program this was like well that, that being the i can connect program i can connect yeah um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was like 2014 through 2016. And, you know, I'm working day in and day out with an interpreter who's like, what is wrong with you? 
you know, what do you mean you want to go to this convention, but you're not sure how you can do it because of your hearing? Just request an SSP. Oh, I can't do that. That's for deaf blind people. You know, so I, I think it's, it's uh, even, you know, even though I wrote a book, I'm still a work in progress, I guess. Yep. You know, and, but, I, and, and I think, and I think we all are because I certainly have some ambivalence towards SSPs and I have to be candid and say that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's certainly an issue. Mr. Yeah. Rick, who's our first question from? Yeah. Hi, Paul. We have Benicio. Fascinating conversation, Paul, as usual. And I, I want to thank the, the two guests. Um, I, I've been blind all my life and totally blind. And I started losing my hearing probably a lot longer, a lot before than I also admitted, like, like Deborah was talking about. But I must say, having read, I think it was a, uh, an article that Deborah wrote on Access World years ago, <clears throat> was really the impetus that I needed to go to, to, to get my hearing, hearing check, get hearing aids, and discover the wonderful connection that nowadays exists between hearing aids and the new technology with iPhones and iPads, etc. That's been just unbelievable for me. So thanks, Deborah, for that. Um, Thank you so much I wanted, for sharing that. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'll, I'll check your book because I think, I think what you meant, the, the, the part of the book that you mentioned regarding the, the relationship and the training of the audiologist is probably something that I could have used because obviously they are not used to, to, to knowing that you, you need your hearing when you walk, you need to use, yes. um, um, sounds, et cetera. Anyway, but, but what I found fascinating about this discussion tonight was this whole adjustment and attitudes that we ourselves as blind people have towards other disabilities, including myself. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, yes. and I think what Deborah mentioned that, we don't, we are fearful and have misconceptions of the things that we don't know and that we don't have, you know, we don't have the skills for. And so yep. it's so interesting to me, having worked in the field of blindness for over 40 years and trying to obviously deal with my own personal barriers of blindness with society, but also teaching society about how blind people can do this and can do that. You know, and here we are having the same issue. So it's a little disconcerting and a little depressing to know how difficult this, difficult this whole process is for sighted people to even accept us. So anyway, it's, it's an, it should be, it, this probably could do a whole new program, Paul. <laughs> thank oh, you, Anisio. Thank you so much for that. I, I, just, I, I just feel like this, maybe we should develop a whole list or chapter or something to talk about just those issues of accepting hmm. one another. Yes. You know, I, I mean, I think when, when, I, when I was a kid in public school, I was in a public high school and there was a, uh, a special ed, it was a huge school, there were 2,000 kids. So I'm in the college prep track and the only blind kid and what matters more than anything else, right? Blending in, being uh -huh. just like everybody else. And there was a kid who was in a special ed track and he had intellectual challenges. And whenever he would see me, he lived in my neighborhood. Whenever he would see me, he would be 
so friendly and speak to me. And I was not nice. And I, I've been ashamed my whole life about that. I was not nice to him because I was so afraid that people would connect us, that they would see that I was like him. And I wasn't like him. I was just a regular kid who couldn't right. see. And I, you know, I mean, I've been ashamed of that my whole life. Like we need to support one another and recognize the other kinds of differences that aren't, and I, I mean, I, I suspect that a lot of you have had the same experience that I've had as adults as you started traveling the world as an independent blind person. I mean, I've written about this. I used to pray going into a department store, please let there be a black person or an Asian person, because even though I'm white, I, I had come to recognize that they would treat me like a human being. And I, I know now it's because that underlying awareness, different is different is different. If you've got something that sets you apart, we're all connected. So anyway, I mean, I'll get off my soapbox, but. Very good. <laughs> Anisio, thank you so much, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. Who's thank next, you. Mr. Rick? Chris Maddox. <laughs> Chris, hey, you're up. Chris from Maine. How are you, Chris? It's good that you got on. Yes, I'm doing very good tonight. Um, I just wanted to say from that discussion tonight, thank you, Deborah, for the nice discussion. And I also wanted to say, um, I wanted to say, um, what I found out was, was that, was that it's very, it was very interesting to find out the differences between deaf and blind because people, because I've been born blind and since birth and been blind my entire life since the 70s, which was 1977, and I contended with it. And I found out that when you learn things, when you're blind your entire life, it's, it's just easier. Whereas when you're sighted at first in your life, and then you lose your sight later on, um, that is much harder to accomplish things and learn things. I mean, I know some people that I know that I still talk to, one person in particular I know that was a computer access, access specialist to me. Well, she had lost her sight due to a suicide attempt. And that was what happened was, and then she had to learn things all over again. And as a blind yep. person, how to adjust. So that mm -hmm. was more difficult there. But for me, I found it easier for a blind person where it's been, you know, easier for me because when I learned when I was younger, it was, you know, it was difficult at first, but then I got used to it and now I'm more used to it. Like people ask me about mm -hmm. Braille and stuff and how I read stuff. And, you know, I said, you know, blind people, that's with raised dots on paper. That's what Braille is. But anybody, mm -hmm. but people who are sighted, they can see this stuff with their eyes. Whereas blind people, how they see things is how, they have to rely on like people like me have got to hear because they cannot see. So cool. Thank you, Chris. So Chris, we're we're so glad to have you back. Chris was around when I did my original Tuesday topics when 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 God was uh, was young enough to be wearing sandals. <laughs> Actually, back so, then there was a dial. We had dial-up connections back then, and I have high-speed internet now. 
I remember sure. those days yeah. as well, Paul. Oh, yes. Yeah. Not too many have that anymore now. Nope. Yeah, you're right. But thank you for calling in, Chris. You're welcome. Excellent. Hey, Who's next, Rick? Uh, Larry's next. Mr. Larry. Hi there, everybody. First of all, thank you, thank you, thank you, Deborah, for finally writing that book. I wish you had written it 10 years ago. I really could have used <laughs> it then. You know, I kind of like you, I grew up um, vanilla blind, as they say, and uh, I was so proud of my hearing, I could hear everything. And I relied on my hearing to play beat baseball and all other kinds of things like that. And in the 80s, I uh, attended three different Amer uh, American Association of Deafblind conventions and was very proud that I was able to to uh, interpret fingerspelling-wise and, and braille-wise for a number of people. And I was so, so proud. And then in the 90s, I began to lose my hearing. And uh, Paul, you asked the question, you know, earlier about, so why are we ashamed? Why are we, you know, fighting? And, and it is because it's a growing, gradual thing that we deny. We don't want to admit, and especially since it was a treasure, since our hearing was yes. such a treasure to us, it and was. now suddenly it it's evaporating. And I fought yes. it, and finally I got one hearing aid, then I got two hearing aids. I didn't know anything about hearing aids or where to buy them, and so I paid more than I should have. Uh, I didn't even know to consult an audiologist until, and I wanted to bring this up, Sassy gave me the information. One of the things that Sassy does... Nice. Yeah, they have a, a, a group email list, and they constantly are communicating. So I finally, you know, posed the question. I said, you know, I'm needing to change hearing aids, and, and, and can you recommend a, a particular product? And the best advice I got was go find an audiologist. Don't go to a hearing aid representative. That's what I have been doing. I went to an audiologist and she was a jewel. She is a jewel. In fact, because of her, I was able to get the right kind of hearing aids for half the price of what I had paid for the previous pair. So yep. Saucy is definitely a great resource. Let me just make one last comment, if I may, Paul, on you may. socialization. This is really hard. When you're hearing impaired and vision impaired, your, your circle of awareness is much, much more reduced. So when you go into a meeting room or into a group where there are people who are both visually and hearing impaired, they may not be aware that you've come in. You've got to make real close contact with them to identify yourself in order for them to be aware of your presence. And then they will definitely welcome you. So I don't know if that was maybe the problem you had, but uh, I have found the SASE members to be very welcoming, very accepting, including Lori. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I appreciate that. So my last question to you, uh, Debbie, is if you have experienced a constricting of your circle of awareness and socialization. No, I would say that there, there were some episodes when I did, but um, for the most part, no. You know, when, when 
sometimes um, when when I've been kind of you know between hearing aids like I've kind of maxed out I mean you know hearing aids are, are like computers you know they're good for six or seven years and I think I'm on my fifth I don't I don't lose track I think I'm on my fifth set but sometimes when they're when mine are kind of maxed out I find myself and, and probably um, what's happening concurrently with that is that I'm, I'm losing more hearing um, then I sort of have gone through phases where I'm drawing back and I'm not wanting to, you know, be with people as much. But um, if anything, these last hearing aids that I, I got a year ago, it's one more insult of COVID because finally, for the first time in probably 20 years, I finally have hearing aids that I could hear a group. If, if I was up to six people at a table, I could do really well in a noisy restaurant. And that was really cool. Um, <laughs> and and with other tools, I mean, read the book, but there's a lot about, you know, other tools in, in the book. And um, so, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's changed my social. I prefer never to be in a group of more than, I would say, eight people max, if I can avoid it. And if I'm in a large group, then I want to divide that group because it's, you know, if it's a group where everybody's talking at once, because it's just not possible with hearing loss, it, and it's not fun. And and I will say just one little P.S. to that. I just finished today wrapping up articles for Access World about the virtual conventions. And for me, even though we all missed being with people, that's one plus of the having conventions virtually is that I didn't have to have a major anxiety attack for two hours beforehand if I can get there in time to sit in the front row so I can hear or that there's going to be too many people in the room because on Zoom, everybody's in the front row. <laughs> so it's really nice. Yeah. So, so I mean, <laughs> I haven't given you a chance to tell folks where they can get your book and how much it costs. So you want to do oh, that good. now really quickly. Yes. So the book um, and the title, I don't even know if we've mentioned the title. The title is when your ears can't help you see strategies. Oh, I can't even remember the subtitle, but anyway, it's strategies for people with vision loss, losing hearing or something like that. Anyway. Um, but when your ears can't help you see, it's available from National Braille Press. It is $18, and the formats are two hard copy Braille volumes, large print, and downloadable in BRF, DAISY, and Microsoft Word. Or if you have trouble downloading and you just want to order it, it can be sent to you on a flash drive. So it's $18 for all formats. I think it might be $2 extra if you want the flash drive yeah, sent. Yeah, $2.50 extra. So it's tw it, okay. it, 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 it actually listed on the website as from 18 to 20.50. Okay, $2.50 <coughs> extra for the flash drive. The flash and then drive it's available from National Braille Press, which is N National B Braille P Press, nbp.org. Um, and the phone number, if you want to call and order, is 
Thank you. And Miss Laurie, just before we, we, we ask the next question, um, folks have talked about the, the SASE mailing list. Um, how, what, what's the best way for people to get in touch with SASE if, if, if they have dual impairments and, and want to make um, a connection? I, since I don't know the subscription information off the top of my head, I know it's in Deborah's book because when I read it, I saw it, <laughs> it there. Yes. But I'll just give my email address and you can email me and I'll forward it to the person who manages the list. So it's my first and last name at gmail.com. So it's L as in Larry, O, R as in Romeo, I as in India, S as in Sam, C as in Cat, H as in Harry, A as in Apple, R as in Romeo, F as in Frank, F as in Frank, at gmail.com. I just wanted to add to what Larry said. Um, frequently, I wind up being what I call the communication person in the social events, asking people to spell their names, uh, especially if it's a difficult name. Um, whether that be a unique spelling of a first name, like Karen Campbell's name has a Y. So I usually tell the interpreters at the beginning of the night how her name is spelled. So when they're signing her name, they know how to spell it. But I don't always know everybody. I don't always know everybody in the room. And sometimes when somebody's introducing themselves, I'll stop them and ask them to spell their name. The other thing that we do at SASE events that's not typical is we also have the interpreters who will be voicing introduce themselves and say who after the participant that they'll be voicing for so that when Joseph all of a sudden goes from having a male voice because Frank was interpreting to Mary who's also interpreting for him um, you know people will also have an additional way to recognize people. So sometimes it's like we're introducing three people for one person. So it, it does get challenging at times, and, and that's not typically done um, in those types of settings. We also always announce who's speaking uh, prior to saying something. Lori, is this I, – I have a question for Lori, because, you know, before even coming – clean with my own dual sensory loss. I was in lots and lots of cross-disability stuff, and I can remember being confused because an interpreter was speaking for a deaf person, and I would want to go talk to that deaf person, and I would follow the voice of the interpreter. And it was very embarrassing because I would, you know, be walking to the interpreter thinking I, you know, was going to be talking to the deaf person and here the deaf person is, you know, six feet off to the right. So is there or any more. kind of convention, uh, rule, protocol, whatever that's be evolving for having, when a deaf person is being voiced by someone else, for the deaf person to make a peep so that people who can't see know where they are? Uh, typically it's not done. Um, you know, um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, typically, typically it's not done. Um, you know, in, in large group settings, very often you have a platform interpreter who may be right. interpreting for five or six people throughout the room. 
and in a cross-disability setting, nobody care. No, well, I shouldn't say nobody cares, but very often our needs as blind consumers are not met. Um, I was actually at a cross-disability event, and the way my name got on a mailing list is the sign language interpreter was told by one of the deaf participants as she stepped off the platform in an interpreter change to go and fill my name out because the eight other people, uh, nine other people at a table of ten just passed the sheet around me and never gave it to me. <laughs> oh, so okay. I, uh, what I did at the college, um, because I was very conscious actually of this problem, um, it's maybe one of the few things I did right, um, is <laughs> even though, even though a deaf person was being interpreted for, I would, I would often say, um, I, I would, I, Hey, Joe, uh, e even though, even though you're not going to be voicing today, just say hello. And that way people Good. would know where he was. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. Cool. Um, All right. And, so Paul, right? And, uh, it's 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 a very good. I mean, usually, like if I'm if I'm standing with somebody and and you know there's an interpreter involved, I'll position myself shoulder to shoulder, you know, with the the interpreter off of my right or left shoulder, right? Assuming that the person she sign she or he is signing to is directly across from her visual field. But I and guess I've course, never really given it any too. thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good question, Mr. Rick. Yes, Jay Reed, please. Hi, uh, that's me. Um, my question is regarding physical fitness. Um, so I have a hearing loss, um, not very major. I mean, with hearing aids, I pretty much function normally. Went blind as I got older. Um, so I went through a training program they, where they did the blindfolds for uh, cane travel training and all of that. And I did it okay, but I hated every minute of it. It was miserable. Um, mm -hmm. Now that I'm no longer forced to do it in that kind of classroom setting, I'm kind of ashamed to admit I haven't crossed the street independently in years, um, right. you know, taking paratransit to get to and from work. So the idea of just my dad's like, oh, go out and take a walk. No, I hate walking. And then, um, you know, things like uh, when I was sighted, I used to like skiing. I used to like biking. I used to like all of these things that are no longer really independently doable as a blind person, which creates a bunch of hassles, whether now you want to go through some disability group to do an organized cycling or skiing thing, um, transportation, uh, three or four vehicles and nine or 10 hours worth of time for three hours yep. worth of skiing up in the mountains and gyms where uh if i want to swim i bounce from lane line to lane line so i need a lane to myself which means kicking the public out of a lane line not to mention now i've got to deal with locker rooms where i'm nude and wet and when i don't have my hearing aids in i am basically deaf blind um the transportation home afterwards all of it is just such a barrier that it's just it's not worth the hassle. And as I've gotten blinder and blinder, I've done less and less of it. And as a result, I've just gotten more and more unhealthy. And I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts might be on, on some of that. Well, I could be really mean and I'm going to be just for a minute and say, get over yourself. I mean, because, you know, I mean, it's all a continuum. You know what I was saying earlier about how every disability has brings some shame with it. So 
I'm going to tell you where I am right now. I have had five major surgeries on a leg that had cancer, and so I've not been able to walk independently for two years. And I would give anything for the days where I went everywhere I wanted to go with a guide dog. And I think I did that only because I had to. I don't think, I mean, I wasn't, I, I wasn't raised to go everywhere independently. I didn't even, I, I was blind at five, but I didn't have a cane until I was 17. I didn't know anything about independent mobility, but life hands you responsibilities. And I wound up having responsibilities that meant I walk lots and lots of places every single day in order to survive by myself for a good, you know, 20 or 30 years. And so I wish that life was handing you that because what I can tell you is when you have to and you get out there and you find out you can do it, it's such a gift and you feel so much stronger and healthier and more competent and more alive. And, 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 and I'm being this forceful about it because I haven't had it for two years and I'm mad. I'm mad. I want it back. Like I have worked out how to walk around my stupid building with a walker because, you know, I'm completely blind. So I can't use a dog. I can't walk well enough with, to have a dog and I can't, you can't use a cane because it takes two hands on the walker. So I don't fall. And so I walk around the building, which is really, really boring um, and not anywhere near what I was doing, you know, three years ago of going to the library and the coffee shop and the grocery store and the bank and everywhere else by myself on a daily basis and thinking nothing of it. But I'm saying if life hasn't forced you to do it, work on yourself. I promise you that if you work on yourself to force yourself to do even a little tiny bit of it, A, walking is such good exercise. So you'll get the physical fitness just being outside and B, you'll thank me. I know you'll thank me. You'll be looking me up six months from now and saying, how do I say thank you to her? Because, you know, yeah. because <laughs> I mean, do you guys who are blind and been doing it for a while, do you agree? I mean, life I has think, to make you do it, but when it makes you do it, it's such a gift. I think the, the other side to this, I'm putting on my rehabilitation task force hat, um, which I also sit on is that if you've had visual changes since you last received training, you may be able to receive additional training. It also may be that the rehabilitation services that you received in a program where you were forced to wear blindfold was not, you were not ready for it psychologically and it impeded right. your ability to function in the future because you were not able to accept what they were trying to teach you at the time. So you may want to reach out to your uh, local vocational rehabilitation agency or whoever provides, I don't know what state you're in, so I don't know, you know if there's nonprofits right. that could serve you. Um, also, I would suggest reaching out to the SASE list, looking for recommendations regarding uh, athletics. <clears throat> I have a very good friend of mine who's totally deaf and almost blind and has been downhill skiing for, I don't even know, like 25 years. Um, 
and the last time he skied, he was 69, which was a couple of years ago. But uh, there definitely are programs that are out there that are able to assist by providing guides that are specifically trained to give you the information that you'll need as a blind skier. Yeah, I think I, the, one other, the one other thing that I would say um, is repugnant, though it would probably seem to you at the moment, um, if you live in a metropolitan area, try to find out if there are some blindness organizations around and go to a few of their meetings. Um, because I think part of what's operating here is I think you have a notion of what blind people do and what blind people are that, that doesn't equate with reality, really. Um, and I think if you got to know some more of them, um, you, might, you might actually find there are some things that you guys could do together that, that would be pretty cool. And COVID makes all of this a little more complex, it but sure all does. of the all of the blindness-related things, the decent agencies and and most of the consumer chapters, I think, are holding meetings virtually. You can find virtual right. meetings, and even yep. you know when Lori was talking about deafblind skiing at Ski for Light, we've had a number of deafblind people over the years. Mm -hmm. um, who come and have, you know, they, they have equipment where they have a thing in their backpack that the, the guide uh, speaks into a microphone and then they hear it in their hearing aids or cochlear or whatever, whatever's going yep. on there. So they get directions. So there's always, there's always a way there's always, I mean, so you can't ski for lights, not even going to happen. The, we just got, word the other day that it's the leadership has decided to not to have it this year but to Skip have it virtually year. yep but so so tap tap into that virtually because yep you will meet virtually a bunch of blind people many of whom have hearing impairments who are doing stuff that i mean i'm no physical fitness guru but there are people who are you'll find people who are you know, swimming yeah. and doing yoga and martial arts and the, running and all kinds of stuff. The, the other thing I just wanted to mention regarding street crossings is some people who are deafblind use what's called communication cards, which are cards with pre-printed um, information on them. They're usually laminated so that, you know, they right. are less so likely to blow away in the wind. Right. Um, some people attach a string on it so they can hang it on a lanyard around their neck. And it says something along the lines of, please tap me on my shoulder when it's safe to cross the street. Those are best used in situations where you're in a metropolitan area. Um, and my friend who I spoke of earlier, she had gone many, many years living in New York City without using this and would just try to get pedestrian assistance and for the last probably eight years of her life she used it on a regular basis and uh, it Excellent. was an immense help to her yeah, and thank you for your you need call, to sir, also I... be working with a mobility instructor who understands right. the impact of hearing impairment on your mobility thank you for your call you, you certainly got us to, to look at lots of issues um, Mr. Rick. Yes, Chris Bell. Chris Hi, Bell. Uh, Paul and uh, Deborah and Lori. Thanks for the great program. 
I, I wanted to address uh, an emotional piece, which is uh, I have uh, hearing loss and, and I'm blind, but I also have uh, learning disability, which means I have no spatial awareness. And where I feel guilty as a, as a blind person is uh, I end up doing things that probably I, I make up that people associate that I'm doing because I'm blind, but mm-hmm. actually I'm doing it because I have no freaking idea where I am in space. Well, and right. it's, it's very common for people with hearing impairments in addition to vision problems to have vestibular issues and other issues that affect their ability to understand where they are in relation to things. I have a good friend who has ushers type 2, and people say to me, why is he always lost? I said, because even that you put his hand on a table, he still doesn't know where his body is in relation to that table. And like when I say it to them like that, they go, oh, really? And it makes them think of, wow, that's difficult, but that's reality for him. He's lived his whole life like this. Right. And although I have actual... uh uh, brain damage that to that part of the brain that does special stuff. Mm-hmm. So I end up, uh, you know, I, I I don't want people to think that well I'm I'm lost or I you know I can I can veer across four lanes of active traffic and not even right. know that I crossed to another yes. side of the street because mm-hmm. I can't I can hear cars you, but I have no idea where they are where they are right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah. but I'm always feeling guilty like oh geez I hope they don't think I'm doing that because I'm blind. right yeah yeah i think i i think you tap into something that is really at the core of what i hope my book and this conversation will get everybody thinking about which is the bottom line is we're all unique individuals and how we do blindness how we do deafness and the whole nine yards is completely unique. And I think it's one area where we as blind people, I think especially in our generation, because so many have finally overcome a lot of the social stigma and done well and had professional success and social success and all that jazz, that we are not always kind to one another. I had a really terrible moment, maybe 10 years ago. I was at a conference, and it was kind of an elite conference. And I was, there were a lot of blind people there. And I was, you know, I was, I was at the top of my game intellectually. But I got turned around in the hotel lobby because it was so loud and so echoey. And oh, I should say, there. orientation has always been a strong suit for me. I've always had really, really good spatial awareness. So I have this moment and there are these two guys there, two blind guys that are, you know, pretty well known and, you know, both super smart and professional and well known in the blindness field. And I was confused and I said something to them that made it clear I didn't have a clue. And the one guy I will never forget it because it was so humiliating. He took me by the shoulders and spun me around. Another blind guy and said, now you're facing the door. And I thought, so that's 
what you think. That's how you treat one of your own. This is, you know, let me, please let me never be that person. Yeah. So it's, you know, and it's beyond the, the scope of our show tonight, but, but I think the other thing that Chris actually demonstrates is that blind services and blind people, and, and there, are, there are reasons for this, um, really do an awful job of recognizing and validating learning disabilities. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, and so another whole topic, Chris, down the road, maybe to talk about your experience as someone with, with learning disabilities and, and, and how that's impacted you, because it's an area that blind people need to look at. And, and frankly, that agencies need to look at even more. And educational because, systems. Right. I mean, the excuse the excuse that's out there is there there are incomplete and incompetent tests for learning disability that can be applied right. to blind people and that's mm -hmm. a bunch of crap so right. anyway right it's yeah. a it, all right well it, thanks that, that's um but thanks for calling in chris and thanks for talking about your learning disability i think it's actually uh uh probably an excuse for you to, for me to get you back on the program <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks guys yep who's next mr rick Kimberly May, please. Kim May. Um, well, I didn't really have a question. I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I am both hearing and visually impaired. Um, I pretty much have been since I was an infant. Um, they first You've had both, both disabilities had... since then, Kim? Yes. Yes. Thank you. They both, they found out, first of all, that I had um, congenital cataracts. So I had to have surgery for congenital cataracts. Then later they found out about my hearing loss. Um, I pretty much worn hearing aids almost since I was an infant. Probably, I'd say maybe a toddler. Um, then later on they discovered my visual impairment and the fact that I have glaucoma. Mm -hmm. So um, I've dealt with all that and everything. And then I, I, when I was in grade school, I started out in grade school from kindergarten up through second grade, going to special ed and regular classes and riding a mm -hmm. special ed bus. But then once I was in third grade, they had me just be in all regular classes. Um, as I got older, I graduated high school. I went to the University of Kentucky. Um, I would have graduated in four years, but it took me six because I had to have um, glaucoma surgery three different times while I was in college. Um, anyway, I got my Bachelor of Science in Family Studies. My major was Individual and Family Development with a minor in communications. Um, I have worked in daycare and my current job, which I have had since 2004, is um, I'm a substitute teacher's aide for the Fayette County Public Schools here in Lexington, Kentucky. This is my 17th year. That is so excellent, Miss Kim. Now, do you, Thank do you. you have any do you have any difference in terms of the way you feel about your blindness and your deafness or are there 
They're both about the same for you. They're about the same. Cool. Excellent. Thank you so much for your call, Kim, and thanks for sharing with us. You're welcome. Excellent. Mr. Rick? Yes, call in user one, please. Calling user one. <laughs> Mystery. Cindy. My name yeah. is Cindy. Hi, Cindy. Hi. So I wanted to also share about myself. And so um, I, I uh, was born with a vision problem, and they said it was due to uh, my mom having German measles. So um, they say that I had uh, uh, glaucoma. So um, I went to, um, I I did not start school till I was almost 10 because my mom did not know where to send me to school. My mom is um, Spanish, so she didn't know any English. She didn't know where to send me to school. So I basically learned at home from my siblings. Um, I learned how to write uh, print from them and, you know, was trying to actually read books, which was impossible. And so um, finally she took me to, to take take me to the doctor. And the doctor asked her, was I going to school? Where was I going to school? She goes, oh, I'm not, she's not going to school. And she, the, the doctor's like, wait a minute. What do you mean she's not gonna she's not going to school? Well, she's not going to school. I don't know where to send her. So my doctor finally decided to think of a school. So they put me in school, and so I I was always behind in grades for that because at ten years old, of course, they put me in first grade. Mm. So um, I went ahead and learned along and did my braille, and I mean, because I was still able to see a little bit. But I had lots of surgeries in between those times. I'm trying to make the story real short. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you. Um, so, um, so, so then I went, went to high school. And um, while I was in high school, they found out that I had a hearing impairment. And uh, I, I kind of figured that I had it, but I wasn't sure because people would talk to me and then they would come back later on in weeks or whatever, they said, I spoke to you the other day and you did not speak back. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, so, so I said, well, I didn't hear you. So um, again, that put me back into going to the doctor and the doctors uh, mm-hmm. ran some tests and they found out that I, was, that I did I had, have, had a hearing impairment. And so um got hearing aids, and at first I was like, all of you guys, I did not want to wear them. I was ashamed of them. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm already visually impaired, so I'm like, okay, one more disability. So I don't need it. So it so happened that I do have long hair. I always have long hair, so I said, okay, I start wearing my hair down so nobody would notice. Okay. So, um so yeah, so then it just kept going on and on. My life kept going on and on. So then I went. I graduated from high school, and again, my mom is like, "No, oh, you know, I I think you don't have to go to school anymore. I think you're okay." And so I I, I said, "No, I want to finish high school and whatever." So then after that, I started working at a workshop, um, and. I was doing factory work and everything, and so then I got married, and I had my first child, and 
once my son got into high school, I I said, okay, so what am I going to do alone? You know, I mean, I got a divorce and all of that good stuff. And I said, what am I going to do now, now that he's going to go to college? And so, I mean, now that he's going to go to high school. So I decided that I was going to go ahead on and go to college. And so I did go to college, and I graduated with my bachelor's degree. And then I went for my master's degree, and... Now I am, to make a long story short, I am a rehab teacher. So um, now I'm going to go back a little bit. So with my hearing aids, I hardly don't hear at all. I could hear mumble, but I don't hear at all. My With my hearing aids, I can hear pretty good. And um, I most of my teachings are one-on-one or maybe no more than five people. Sometimes it can get kind of complicated. But, um, yeah, so I'm a rehab teacher, and I'm teaching Braille and independent living and all that good stuff. And so um, recently, due to the COVID, I started working from home. So I teach um, the client over the phone. I put them on my speakerphone, and they're on the speakerphone, and I teach them their Braille and whatever they want to learn. Right. Right. And and so um, in May... After being home um, since the middle of March and May, I said, you know what, I am tired of being up in this house, and I wasn't getting no exercise or anything like that. And so I, one day I just went out, and a neighbor of mine happened to be out. And so I asked her, I said, you know what, can you just kind of give me a, a, an idea around the block and let me know, you know, do I have to do any street crossings or anything like that? Because I do fear street crossings because uh, mm-hmm. I – you know, I know the cars are there, but I don't know where, where they're at. So, um, yeah, I started walking, and oh. since May that I started walking, I've lost 25 pounds, and I feel great. Look at That's you. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. We, we've got some other calls, so I'm going to have to cut you short, but thank you so much for calling. Okay, Just like Mr. to commend her for yeah. all of her hard work over the years and, and really... Yeah persevering um and what she has experienced is very common uh partly because of some cultural issues and in other countries blind children very often don't go to school to the degree that they do here and if you've come from another country her parents may not have understood how our educational system works mr rick yes phone number four zero three six please um, does SASE have, I, I don't know as much about it as I should, I've been to ACB convention. Does SASE have resources? I have a, um, an alarm clock. I have a bed shaker with, paired with my smartphone, but it's kind of, I'm looking for something that's plugged in that has speech. Does SASE actually have resources for people who cannot find them? I find these little tiny little clocks under my pillow and I want something to plug in. I cannot find anything that, that, that works, but, but, but one cannot, can set if you were to post yes, something yeah. if you were to post something to the list um, yeah. uh, I can give my um, email address at email the end because I don't oh, have the yeah. subscription information but I am almost certain we have at least three people that I can think of that could come up with the solution yeah right, is, so, is it sharp so, at gmail.com yes no, it is it is Okay. Thank, thanks for your call, sir. Yep. 
Thank you. I didn't want to monopolize the conversation. Thank you very much. Sure. Mr. Rick? Yes, Linda Faust, please. Yeah, it's a pleasure to hear your voice, um, Deborah. I, I used to belong to the Pinellas chapter um, until I moved to Massachusetts because I couldn't find a place to live there. But anyhow, I have, you know, several um, concerns. Um, I found that when I lived in Florida, and I used to go to monthly, um, you know, the, the monthly meetings, I was angry because I felt like a lot of the blind and visually impaired people there, like I felt like I was separate of everybody because of my hearing impairment. And I felt like I was disillusioned and when, and now I'm, you know, now I'm in Massachusetts, everything's more spread apart. I don't go to monthly meetings, but the virtual meetings are great because <laughs> I could go anywhere. I don't have to worry about getting a ride. But um, I'm um, I'm concerned about even when I'm in a sighted environment, social situations. You know, it's hard to get uh, when, like where I live in a retirement uh, community. Um, people don't. It's hard to relate to people because they don't tell me who they. You know, I, I say who is it, and they don't tell me who it is, or I don't hear them. And, you know, right. I'll say, what did you say? And either I don't hear them repeat it or um, or they just don't repeat it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I envy the fact that uh, I envy a lot of people that are in social situations that, where they don't mind. Right. Um, I lost my hearing, I'd say, very gradually and didn't notice it until I was in my 60s. And I started singing out of tune and stuff like that. You know, before I had now, Linda, aids. are are you comfortable talking with people about your hearing loss? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah I so, talk a lot. <laughs> okay, very good. So, um, so in those type I, of situations, I, I think blind organizations have to do better. Go ahead, Lord. I was just going to say, in in community situations where it's your neighbors. Uh, you know, when you have the opportunity to really interact with them one-on-one when it's good for you to communicate, I would certainly reach out to them because you are comfortable. Um, you could also have a friend like me who has been known to make a point of telling somebody that they're being spoken to and not realizing that they were ignoring the person that was speaking to them. On purpose. Uh, yes, on purpose. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't have anybody like that. that so it goes, no, it goes never. I, we get that, Linda. It, it goes. It goes both ways. Um, you know. So the, regarding the ACB um, involvement, the SASE committee will be doing some presentations and working on some documents addressing uh, cultural sensitivity and accommodation needs of people within their local chapters who are deafblind. Excellent. And we, we have done documents in the past, but those were more developing policy within ACB uh, reasonable accommodations. So this is to bring it down to the state level, you know, and, and giving them some guiding documents and within the states and special interest affiliates. Well, and because I'm really I am glad Pinellas Council, I feel like I should speak up here. You know, I'm, I'm relatively new down here, but... Linda, this was how I knew you. And I would just say that before COVID, I think we were doing very well using microphones at every meeting and making sure that everybody could hear. So 
I think, you know, we as blind first people are constantly learning and getting better. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the most that we can do is, you know, when you have a hearing impairment is speak up. I mean, I, I had an ongoing situation with, I moved and I couldn't find a church because I couldn't find a church where I could hear what was going on. And, and I kind of, you know, regret that I didn't speak up enough, but I think that's what you need to do. And, and know that right now during COVID, everybody's struggling. And so I, I would strongly recommend that you read the list of the community events coming out and so forth and join Zoom meetings and, and interact with people that way. And you'll, you know, get yeah, to you know make more some people. good friends too. Yeah. Yep. I, I would just like to add to that. The other day, I want to say it was maybe a week ago, um, on the community Facebook group, there was a whole discussion that started about hearing aids. And on that, I had suggested that people reach out to the SASE list, but about eight people who I have never heard of and never seen their name on anything uh, related to the SASE discussion list uh, chimed in and began talking about hearing aids. So there's a lot of people out there that have their own experiences, and there is a very, very large community with varying needs. Excellent. And, and Rick, I let's try to get to two questions if, if we can. Can, can if, I if you don't mind. this one list? Very quick, Paul. quick, quick, quick. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, the blind hearing aid users list, and I'm I'm mad at myself I didn't mention it sooner, but it's a listserv of blind hearing aid users, and you can join the list by sending a message to blind hearing aid users plus subscribe at groups.io. It's a wonderful list, and, and people are so smart and talk about everything that has to do with combined hearing and vision loss. Excellent. So we have Gary Legates, please. Gary? The last ACB convention I went to before this one that we just had was in Los Angeles because at that point I realized I was losing my hearing. And in fact, I lost it quickly. But I have perfect hearing in my right ear, but none in my left ear which means that I have zilcho sense of direction or, you know, ability to, you could say, come to me and I might turn around and walk you don't away know where from me you. is right. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, the best thing I did was, uh, cause I was still teaching. I was still working. I was doing what you talked about shame and ha how we feel about our handicapped. I had done well as a blind person and was really doing well. And then suddenly I have this extra burden, but I was still determined to do well. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to continue to do well. And so I had, like you might say, twice as much pressure to keep doing well than I had before. And I just did it. I, I went and got guide dog training. That's hard enough when you're just blind. Mm -hmm. And they at that time, the seeing eye made no difference whether you were blind or whether you had a hearing impairment. You got the exact same training. I wish that I had had some help with technique. Maybe there's some techniques that would have made me do a little better. But anyway, I got a guide dog and did very well. And I've had two other ones since then. And I found the training easier as I got the other dogs.
but I guess what I, I want to say, yes, you, you, get, you put this pressure on yourself as a blind person, and then when you've got this other burden added, you just keep going, but you, you put an awful lot of pressure on yourself. I wish that there had been someone I could have gone to who had nothing to do with my job, and I could have said, this is what I'm facing. What can I do? I also would love to get involved with people who use a guide dog and who have hearing loss because I have a feeling that there probably are techniques that I don't even know about that, that would help me. Um, I can't get around without a guide. I mean, the guide this dog's is how I do get around. But at the same time, I don't feel competent necessarily to come to an ACB national convention mm -hmm. because – I do go to state conventions, but uh, I just feel that the national convention will be just a little too much for me. This is but, about that a little bit is, in the book. Um, I'm going to get yeah. your book, Debbie. You interviewed me, Debbie, 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember know, me or not, but I do. you did. Yeah, um, anyway, I'm, I'm definitely going to get your book. So Great. This is Laurie Thanks, speaking. Gary. I just wanted to say if you email me, Gary, there is a guide dog list uh, for all guide, all different guide dog users, and there are a lot of people on there that are deafblind or have hearing impairments and visual impairments from all different schools, and I can send you that information. Lori, we are getting near the end, so why don't you give your email again? Sure, it's L, it's my first and last name, so it's L as in Larry, O, R as in Robert, I, S as in Sam, C, H is in Harry, A, R, F is in Frank, F is in Frank at gmail.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. Miss Deborah, you have one minute. Anything you'd like to say? Uh, yeah, people can reach out to me. The book is available from National Braille Press, www.nbp.org, or you can reach out to me, uh, Twitter at Kendrick Insight. All one word, Kendrick Insight or DKK33709 at Outlook.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, and thank you both for being guests. I think we've shed some light and sound on mm. a, an interesting issue that doesn't get the attention it deserves, and you guys have both done a wonderful job of being uh, outstanding guests, and thank you very much. Next thank week, we're going to have fun. Thank you for having us tonight. And I just want to say that Karen regretted, um, Karen and Carl from the SASE committee regretted that neither of them were able to make it tonight. Well, excellent. We'll Thank catch them so at another time. I had Carl on last week, and, and I'll get Karen on. She's, she's not off the hook. Next week, we're going to do something interesting on Tuesday Topics. Uh, we're going to talk about what makes a better long-term partner, a blind-blind partnership or a blind low vision or sighted partnership. I think it should be a fun discussion and I hope there'll be lots of controversy. This is Paul Edwards for Tuesday Topics saying, remember that listening is a privilege, but hearing's a gift. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>